calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and this is the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today, and we are very excited because we're having our favorite topic on the show, which is science. On the program is Dr. Gail Sinatra and Dr. Barbara Hofer, and their book is called Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. Now, if you've been listening to the program, you know we've had some scientists on here over the past couple months because I think this is the most important topic that is facing this country right now. It touches on so many different aspects of our life, from climate change to coronavirus, all of this stuff is this distrust that we seem to have now, or some people seem to have for science. So I'm very excited to have them on the program. So Dr. Sinatra is the Stephen H. Crocker Professor of Education and Psychology uh, at the School of Education at the University of Southern California. And here's this sort of blew me away. She has three degrees in psychology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, she directs the Motivated Change Research Lab and has been honored with the Sylvia Scribner Award for Influential Research from the American Education Research Association. Dr. Hofer is, the, is a professor of psychology uh, emerita at Middlebury College, is a fellow of the American Psychology Association. She received her PhD in psychology and education from the University of Michigan in her uh, EDM in human development from Harvard University. She is the recipient of national awards for both research and teaching from the American Educational Research Association and the American Psychological Association. So all of that is to say these two know what they're talking about. And what's really fascinating about these books for me is looking at the psychology of why people distrust science. So we'll talk a little bit about that later, but the underlying causes for why these things happen are, I think, really important for us to discuss. So before we get to that, you know, we have a little bit of business. The Jam comes out every Wednesday, and these video podcasts come out about every Monday and Friday. There's two things you can do to help us spread the word about this. First, tell your friends about us. And second, leave us a written review or star review wherever you listen to podcasts, particularly if you listen to Apple Podcasts, because that 
the star rating and the written reviews are how we get found. You can also pop on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review there or head to the writersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're there, if you're looking for a book to read, we have book reviews, or you can click on the bookshop link there and buy a book from anybody who's been on the program. You can also sign up for a monthly newsletter. If all of if you just want this showing up in your email box on the first of the month, do that. The last thing you can do while you're there is support everybody on the Solid Listen Network. Click on that Patreon button, just a couple bucks a month, get commercial-free episodes, bonus content from everybody on the network. So if you've listened to the show, like over, like I said, the last few months, we've had lots of um, people that have been looking at science denying and why people distrust science. And the tenor of the conversation has always been less about the politici uh, politicizing of science, but more about how we have to learn to talk to people that don't believe or that deny science truths that exist. And this conversation is so fascinating to me today, the one you're about to hear, because we have to understand that a lot of times people don't trust science, not because they don't trust science, but because of these underlying psychological issues or fears or concerns that they have about something in their life. So you can't just say like, why don't you believe X? What you have to do is understand, well, what is it that you're afraid of? Or what do you fear? What, what don't you understand? Or what is it that concerns you? And you can sort of, as you begin to get into that, you realize that, well, maybe there's not this disconnect that we think there is, but it's very difficult to have those conversations. And, uh, and so having people, um, like Dr. Sinatra and Dr. Hofer on who writing about this and talking about this, I just think is wildly important and they're charming and lovely and brilliant and hilarious. So you're also going to enjoy the show today. Um, and I'm excited to bring it to you. So thank you for stopping by the bunker to spend a little time with Max and I to talk a little bit about science. I hope that you're doing well and taking care of yourself and taking care of each other. And I hope that you will sit back and spend about 35 minutes with us as we have a conversation with Dr. Sinatra and Dr. Hope. I have three questions, but we'll start with what's the underlying cause of all this? Because, you know, popularly right now, everybody says, oh, Republicans don't believe in science. But like when I was at MIT's technology review, nuclear power was a thing and GMOs were a thing. And I mean, it was a nightmare talking to my lefty friends, trying to explain to them, like these fears are unfounded by and large, the ones that you have, right? Like this is not a Republican or yeah. Democrat thing. I I'm really grateful you brought that up because I think that's a lot of why we wrote this book is that what we wanted to do was talk about how it's not an us and them issue, but that their underlying psychological explanations for why we're all susceptible. Um, it's pretty clear that some people are more susceptible than others. <laughs> Let's not make it sound like it's balanced. But overall, there are cognitive explanations, psychological explanations for, for why all of us can fall prey to denial, doubt, resistance, whatever, to things that are fairly well-established facts. So let's let's pop into that. Like, what are those underlying factors? Like, what are the things that, you know, we should all be thinking about? 
Well, we cover several of them in our book. Um, we look at issues such as the cognitive biases that we have. In other words, the ways we're sort of uh, wired to view the world sometimes conflict with the information that is actually uh, verified by scientists. Uh, we look at issues like how we think about knowledge and how we think scientific knowledge is, 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 comes about or, or how we misunderstand that sometimes. <laughs> we look at things like emotions and motivations. Um, the and social of, identity. <laughs> the yeah. social identity that plays intersecting with the internet and the spread of misinformation. Uh, so there's a number of issues that we uh, discuss in the book. So it feels to me like, and I realize having you just said that me beginning with it feels to me is <laughs> one of those things that we got to be careful with, but it feels to me very much like much of this is tied into social identity that like these other sort of things have always existed, but this idea yeah. of a collective that you can immediately tap into and find an identity in a way that you couldn't sort of pre web and pre-internet seems to be the biggest issue that we're facing. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's maybe it's just the biggest one. And, and it is interrelated because in, in many ways, it's a cognitive shortcut. You know, it's a way to say, I don't have to do all this investigation myself. Here's what my people <laughs> think. So <laughs> I'm just going to go with that. And that's really troubling. And as Gail said, the internet amplifies that. So you've got people living in these little echo chambers where they're only being fed back the things that they already believe. Or even if they go search for information, they're using what's called confirmation bias. They search until they see something that supports what they believe, no matter how erroneous it is. But all of this is a part of thinking we're tribal beings, we affiliate, we use cognitive shortcuts to think about the things that our friends think about. But you don't want to get kicked out of the group either. And so there's a powerful incentive to conform. So I just read an article yesterday that in Missouri, in the Ozarks, people are going to get vaccinated in disguise. They don't want their friends and neighbors who are uh, anti-vaccination to see them getting vaccinated. <laughs> there's a powerful incentive to yeah. remain in the same viewpoint as your friends and neighbors. You don't want to get kicked out of the group. When I know when I was, I guess part of what I was saying is that, you know, I, I was at Wired in 99 and we, there's ah. a book called Geeks. There are all these books about the ability of people to find community that they couldn't find, yeah. you know, it, offline. Because if you were a gay kid in a small rural town, yes. like the internet suddenly, so there was this, like, it is this. Yeah, we are tribal and the Internet has allowed us to find that tribe anywhere. Right. Yeah. And, and as yeah. much goodness as there is to it, there's also this other thing where it's like, holy shit, we're not paying attention to the fact, you know, the joke we made a, a, a sort of post wired is we, we were so happy because any it was democratic. Anybody could say anything <laughs> they want. And then like 10 years later, we were like, holy shit. Anybody can say anything, <laughs> say anything they want. They want. <laughs> well, we thought that it would democratize information so that we'd be exposed to multiple points of view, but it's right. essentially done the opposite. You're now just exposed to points of view that agree with yours. And, you know, you're not exactly falling down a rabbit hole. You're, you're pulled down the rabbit hole by these algorithms. And so you see more and more yeah. of the information that you agree with and less and less 
of the information that is different from what you believe. And so we, we thought it would democratize <laughs> as in provide multiple yeah. voices. It does, but you don't see those multiple voices as much once you're stuck in one of these rabbit holes. Yeah. Or even if you do, again, back to tribal identity, your 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 affiliation says, okay, but I'm gonna believe what these people believe. But you know, I read a wonderful story yesterday about a 25 year old in I'm gonna say Tennessee who finally decided to get vaccinated and she had believed that infertility was gonna oh, result. Yeah. And and she thought, oh, you know, I just can't do it. I don't wanna be infertile. And then when she started seeing how bad it was around her, she decided to actually go find information. <laughs> and, and she had this wonderful quote about, it's really good to be skeptical, but it's really bad to be ignorant. <laughs> well, and I think you know, this is an issue, right? Like it, that, you know, people believe that I got some friends that say, you know, you should question everything. And, and I just remind them like, kind of, but no, <laughs> like, you know, there are things that you can question and obviously you shouldn't just blindly follow anything, but just asking a question isn't in and of itself intelligence. It, that is, yeah. you know, you can yeah. be reductive yeah. with that and just absolutely find your way to yeah. what you want by always saying, yeah. well, what about this? What about this? Yeah. And if you have yeah. a child, you know that to be true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the other part of this that is fascinating to me is the role of the media because I was a journalist, right? Like, and when I yeah. taught journalism, I used to make my kids read the invisible gorilla, right? Like all the, which is a book <laughs> about all the ways that you will fool yourself into believing a thing. Yes. So that you don't go into a situation and think I have seen this. Therefore this thing that I think that I've seen is true because yeah. you may not be seeing exactly what you think it is. So how, what's the role of that? Not, not the Facebook, not the weird groups, not the social spaces where people sort of go, but the media, as they write about science, as they write about these things, what's their role? Well, one, one of the issues that has really concerned the two of us is the idea of balance, the way in which the media has for a very long time acted as though it's everything is sort of 50-50. So we've got to have balance. You know, if, if we're going to talk about climate change, oh, we better go interview a denier. Right? And then it misrepresents the actual known science. It makes it sound as though it's unsettled when it's not. And um, we love that, oh, five or six years ago, the BBC came out and said, nah, we're not gonna do that anymore. You know, reporters are not allowed when they talk about climate change to go interview a denier because we know what climate change is now. We can't do that. And there's some nice psychological studies that show that balance can become bias. So when people start to see those kind of articles, they think, oh, well, we don't really know. Therefore, there's some doubt here. And um, Gail and I've read a lot from Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway about manufacturing doubt, the ways in which the media can also um, be complicit in helping other people think that more doubt exists than it does. So we're, so Gail, what do you want to say about media well, here? The too? both sidesism, everyone is aware of it and yet they continue to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so we really have to push back on, on the both sidesism. In addition to that though, there's the clickbait headlines and everybody wants, you know, eyeballs on their story. And so the clickbait headlines, as you know, when you click on them, often the story says almost the opposite from what the headline says, or the headline is, is really misleading. And so it's, it's both sidesism and then it's clickbait headlines that, that are really drawing you to the, to the wrong idea. And a lot of people don't necessarily read the whole story, right? <laughs> yeah. That's why 
Twitter started that. Uh, are you sure you want to share this article? Because yeah. we know you haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's interesting because that's where, you know, whenever they do the studies, like journalists by and large tend to skew left, right? Corporate ownership tends to skew right. The actual people on the ground tend to skew left. And I think that I don't think because I know because I've written about science and technology and I read things in the paper and I'm like, well, that's not right. Like I just yeah. I know for a fact what you because they yeah. think they understand the science. They think they understand that a breakthrough happened, right? And I've just put breakthrough in quotes if you're listening, because breakthroughs are oftentimes like 50 years worth of science happening or 30 years worth of science. Yeah. And the breakthrough yeah. is oftentimes very small. But it's big to scientists, so they make it a big deal because it's big for that thing. But a lot of times it's just filling in a hole, which is important. But to the public, they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Well, they may not understand the science themselves. I mean, you don't have to take Bayesian statistics to become a journalist. And, right. you know, there's all sorts of scientific content that is very yeah. complex, like the, all of the it. genetics behind the mRNA vaccine, yeah. you know. I mean, if you're a writer for the New York Times, I don't know that you've necessarily taken a genetics course recently. So this is complicated stuff. And we regret that there's there's fewer science writers and fewer yeah. science pages in, in, in mainstream media than yeah. there used to be in the past because those writers tended to have science degrees and tended to yeah. have more of an understanding of the scientific processes than, than your typical journalist who yeah. you know, really shouldn't necessarily have that, but we, right. we would love them to. And then you have universities that, and this sort of gets to the scientists themselves, you have PR machines that will take oftentimes things that come out of research labs and try to pre-package them into stories that are not actually representative of what's happening, right? Like there or, is or this Oh, or they might be representative, but it's such a tiny little study that it isn't really worth reporting yet. And yes. we know we need replication. We need multiple studies. My favorite this week that I sent to Gail was from Harvard Magazine, um, this headline that uh, eat chocolate and lose weight. And it's the kind of thing Gail and I are always laughing about. But this was about better if you eat that chocolate at breakfast, you're more likely to lose weight. And you know, before you start spreading chocolate on your toast in the morning, you might want to dig a little deeper here. There were 19 people in the study, yeah. and it's so lacking in conclusiveness. But Harvard Magazine, yeah. you know, did this big promo with a clickbait headline <laughs> yeah. to get people to think, okay, eat your chocolate. Lose but this weight. is dangerous because it creates uh, mistrust. Because first they say chocolate is good for you, then they say chocolate yeah. is bad for you. Yeah. Those scientists. They don't know what they're talking about. So, you know, some university wants their researcher with a new finding to get their finding out, and that's great. But really, what you should trust is not one study, which you know, Brad, yeah. uh, but accumulated evidence, the scientific consensus. And journalists don't write enough about how did we get to that yeah. consensus? Yeah. You know, how many times have you heard this vaccine is brand new? It came out of thin air. This is my you know, favorite. Yeah. Months. No, yeah. the mRNA technology is yeah. decades old and, yeah. and, and that has been evolving in labs for quite some time. Yeah. So it's misleading to give these clickbait uh, headlines. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the Gormans and I talked about, you know, it was one of the points that I wanted to discuss with them and you is that people don't understand the scientific process, right? Like coronavirus isn't new, like, but, but now that we've called this thing warp speed and now that there's been a vaccine in 18 months, which is fucking astounding, but it's 18 months plus 30 years, right? Right. Like that's right. It it could only get in 18 months because of all of the work that got done. And then literally the whole world marshaled every resource that it could. And we're, we know the vaccine works, but it's not, it's still new, right? Like we're still right. figuring out, like, do you need a booster? How often will you need yeah. it? What are the antibodies? There's still a lot of questions to the long-term efficacy, not if it works people. So get the goddamn and, vaccine. <laughs> and, and again, if you, if you didn't grow up really learning how science works yeah. and what the process is, you can start to think, oh, they're just all over the place. They don't really know what they're doing. They change their minds. They're, you know, and, instead of seeing science as an iterative process and that with a novel coronavirus, this is novel, <laughs> you've got to be figuring it out on the ground and we should be grateful for everything they figured yeah. out. We now know that it is transmitted in a respiratory way, that we're not having to wash our groceries down when we bring them in the house anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you the know, strength of science is that it does change with uh, new yes. evidence, right? Yes. And that that's not viewed as a strength. You know, we keep hearing, oh, scientists lied about mask wearing, 
you know, it, it's that the situation has changed in regards to understanding and you yeah. want science to be updated based on that. And yeah. you'd want public policy to be updated based on that science. And so people aren't used to this progression going so quickly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, human nature, I think, is to, I mean, this sort of gets back to what you were talking about, is that we want to be right. And confirmation bias exists because nobody likes to be wrong. And science <laughs> is literally about being wrong. Like, I mean, that is that nobody, no, you're not setting out to prove something right. You're trying to prove it wrong. And if you can't prove it wrong enough, then it's like, well, I guess this is right. And that's such a different way than human beings think. Right. A bad scientific study is when you do it and it comes out exactly like everybody else's. You're like, oh, shoot, you know, yeah. that's not very interesting to a scientist yeah. to confirm everything we already know to be true. So um, it's really a misperception on the scientific process. And we don't teach. I know you yeah. have a background in education. We don't <laughs> teach enough about the scientific process. There's um, something called the Next Generation Science Standards, which are recommended standards about scientific processes we want to teach in k-12 education and they do emphasize that process more than just facts and yet um, only a, a few states um, have taken that up to inform their science curriculum yeah and you know yeah that's a whole different con conversation trying to get that shit into the schools because you know yeah. that People don't even want that. So there's two things that I want to get to uh, before we wrap up. Uh, the first is the, sort of the third question that I wanted to talk about was the role of science in this, right? The business of science with journals and the way journals work and the way all of those things, it, it, how much does that play into this uh, sort of science denying that we have? And, and what I mean is journals, for instance, you don't, if you're a researcher, you don't, it's hard to get published by replicating, right? Like replicating a thing doesn't is hard. There aren't journals that do, nature ain't publishing 10 studies that confirm what we already know, right? And so it feels to me like the process of science is on, a, on the business of science is broken. Well, there's no question that we as academics, you know, live under that publish or perish <laughs> kind of motto. And there is so much pressure on researchers that you've even seen people you know, plagiarize or, you know, make up data. And that's rare and it is discovered. So that's good. But yeah. you see those pressures really leading to bad outcomes. And so we would love to see more public funding of science. Yeah. So there wasn't that competitive pressure to maybe go with a corporation to fund your research, because then there could be some bias there. And then we would love to see, you know, more um, open source publication of Failures to replicate, which are yeah. very important pieces of research. Because I feel like that is what hides the process from people, right? Like not that regular people are reading nature and shit like that. But again, if you have to publish and then your university is putting out releases because they want it to be popular so that you can get funding from the NSF that then goes out into the media. Like it, to me, it is a chain of things that are happening. And I don't maybe more of a circle because I don't know where it begins and whose fault it yeah. is. But those three things seem to feed into this world that we live in now where people don't believe science. Well, one thing we would say is that back in our day, there was more funding for science. And so that that's helpful as it, it can create more access to funding for a diverse array of researchers and, and reduce that competition. And 
um, the and also the expectations uh, at universities, you know, are are out of this world, right? So <laughs> yeah. you get full professor, they want a hundred publications and millions in grants. And so there's just a lot of pressure on people to, to do a smaller study rather than something longer term or something with more import that might be harder to publish. And we should be rewarding um, application of science to yeah. uh, problems such as climate change and, yeah. and public health. And universities want those to be new research. That, I guess that gets back to the idea of replication studies. If you publish 100 of those, you're not getting tenure. No, like, you're right. I mean, yeah. I've sat on there's, tenure committees. I, I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> there, there's definitely a press for new information, and that's really critical. But that also feeds science in a healthy way as well. It keeps people looking at the cutting sure. edge and trying to figure out what should be falsified here or... Yeah. What what is the next variable we need to add to this to understand it? I mean, there's a lot of really fabulous research going on in all the areas that we're concerned with. We we really need to work to get people to interpret it better, and that's <laughs> that's a huge issue. You know, I think about the the other issue that is the, the most powerful for us right now is obviously climate change. I mean, we're really at a, a dangerous, deadly point with that. And when you look at what's going on around the world right now with the flooding in Germany and the temperatures in Canada and the, the fires in the West Coast, you know, we've, we, we really have at finally a lot of visual evidence for the people who need visual evidence, sadly, when we've known for decades now where we were headed and what's going on. Yeah, but again, shortages. we've got yeah, but we've got people sowing doubt where we really shouldn't have any. And that's that's a huge problem. Yeah. And that, you know, that, I guess the fourth rail is the politics, which, again, we won't talk about because um, the, the the weirdness of, of science being politicized is such a, you know, yeah. I come from yeah. a, I come from Trump country. I come from, you know, largely Republican place. And like at no point grew up like I got vaccinated as a kid. You know, my parents took me in yeah. like there, you know, NASA space was like an important thing we watched all of that Nixon happening. created the epa yeah i mean <laughs> yeah it's it it's so it it's it, it's really this last like decade and a half it feels like that there has been this weird shift and again not republican or democrat but that science has become very politicized in a yeah. way that, that was I a deliberate remember. that was a deliberate thing because right. when we were younger as you say you know it didn't matter what political party you were you were rooting for the space race you yeah. were rooting for um, American innovation yeah. in science. No polio. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, as, as Fauci had said, if the polio vaccine had come out in this kind of climate, we would all still be getting polio. It's crazy, I mean, that's right? That's really troubling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah, it's, it, that's amazing. So, um, I mean, in a, amazing in a bad way. So, yeah. uh, I want to sort of end with personal stuff. So what, what makes you guys sit down and go okay we got to write the book science denial like what what is it that spurs you on because i'm always interested in why people choose to explore a specific question so what was it in your lives that made that happen these are actually issues we've both been working on for several decades in parallel lives and sometimes together so they are you know there this is a lifetime of research that we've both done that drove us but we were at an invitational conference that the German Science Foundation and the US Science Foundation organized about 10 years ago. And it was on the public understanding of science. And we were privileged to be there with all these wonderful scholars who were doing research in the area and realizing that we needed to get this 
out further. So we wrote several peer reviewed articles together, but out of that, we knew we really wanted to bring it to the public. We really felt like we know enough now to really try to help people wrestle with this. And again, it's not an us and them issue. We're not looking at some people think this, some people don't, but we're all susceptible to certain yeah. parts of these psychological processes. And so I think anybody will find the book a valuable read, both in terms of understanding themselves and understanding their neighbors and their relatives who maybe don't quite get this. And it offers suggestions for how to talk to those people as well. So let's end with that. What are the ways, what are some of the ways to talk to those folks? Because you know, we don't do that so much anymore. And we don't hear so much well, anymore either. Just, well, you've just identified the most important thing, and that is talk to people with different points of view. And all of us uh, have got to do more of that. Listen to other people um, and listen to, um, you know, people's uh, true concerns. As Barbara was just saying, if you're a young woman and you've heard the vaccine would make you infertile, that's obviously a legitimate concern. And then to get that clear misconception cleared up is important. But you know, just um, you know, being preachy about vaccination without listening to someone's concerns—that's uh, a problem. So we need to really understand each other and what our concerns are, and try to help people find better information so yeah. they can get those concerns yeah. addressed. And, and I think we have to get out of dichotomous thinking of thinking, I think like this and they think the opposite. Yeah. And really realizing there's some point of connection and finding that point of connection um, with warmth and with good listening skills. And, you know, I have told Gail this story of meeting with a climate denier who had come to one of my public talks and wanted to get together afterwards. And um, it was initially, we were in very different camps, but then we began to talk about the fact that we both had grandchildren. We cared about the world that we were leaving for them. And suddenly his conversation changed and he talked about, well, actually he had some economic concerns about how to fix it and everything shifted. And I think we need more of those conversations where we find what do we have in common and how do we build on that? Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I talk about on the show all the time is, is my Venn diagrams, right? Like I interview, uh, and talk yeah. to, I, I talk to people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds and, and the two different versions of the show. And there's always a Venn diagram, right? And like, if you can first yeah. figure out where the cross, where where that is, yes, then the other stuff is easy and it's exciting. It's when you think that the circle, there is no Venn yes. diagram, right? That it's two circles and it's a skill and it's, you know, look, I'm a white dude in America. So it's taken me a long time to develop and understand yeah. and empathy and to understand the importance of that because you know i was saying like we're the most dangerous people in this country because white dudes don't have rails we, we've never been sort of constrained in a way that everybody else in this country has been and so i think you know because i sort of think that the, it's it's this sort of i know you guys won't say this but i'll say it like it, this is sort of like white dude machismo that seems to be pushing this anti-science stuff and they don't see a Venn diagram. They see yeah, two circles. Yeah, and yeah. so it's particularly incumbent upon people that look and sound like me to say, no, everybody, we yeah. all have a Venn diagram somewhere. And, and, and we yeah, have to be the ones that yeah. approach other people to, 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 to sort of find that. Well, also it's, it's, it's extreme interpretation of values. Like we believe in freedom in the yeah. United States, but you know, you're not free to drive on the wrong side of the road. Right. Um, or drive. So yeah. You have to balance that with responsibility. And we all talk about freedom, but we, we're, we're having a hard time talking about what was the responsibility 
And also we're very independent in the United yeah. States and we like to think about individualism, but we have to also remember that, you know, we all live together here. Right. <laughs> and well, and so I, the pandemic has made us realize we got to think a little bit about our collective neighborhoods yeah. and nation and what, yeah. what we can do together. And I, that's the patriarchal sort of like hyper machismo whiteness thing that just sort of permeates this to a, to an extent that people don't see it, right? It's it's a fish in water. Like they don't realize they're swimming around in this because they're just around all the time. And and cutting through that and understanding that at least, you know, the way I approach it is that, you know, if you're, machismo isn't it being an individual. It's not freedom at all costs. It's not don't tread yeah. on me. It's, it's kindness and taking care of people around you. Like that was the first thing I was taught as a kid, right? Like take care of those that can't take care of themselves. Yeah. Help yeah. those who can't, because someday you'll be that person, right? Like outside of it's the right thing to do, self-preservation. <laughs> uh, and it seems like we have forgotten that again. And that's why I talk so much about Venn diagrams, because we just forget, like, there's way more about us that's the same. Just like you were talking about with the climate um, yeah. denier, like grandkids, family, wants a better place, concerned about the economy, everybody, yeah. money is yeah. an issue, yeah. like, yeah. That's just yeah. normal shit that somehow we've turned yeah. into, you don't understand. Like, no, no, <laughs> we all understand that. Well, I, I think your Venn diagram example is just an excellent one. And we just might borrow that from Do you. It. That's just <laughs> that's just a great way to think about it and about how you find that intersection. And that's really what it's about, you know, is figuring out where do you connect with someone yeah. and how do you use that as a platform to leverage the discussion? Yeah. Uh, it has been lovely talking to you guys. Obviously, I could talk about this subject forever. I'm so happy that you're out writing about this and talking about it. Um, the book is Science Denial. So like it's well named on the nose. Like there's no, <laughs> no confusion about what it's about. But it's just, I think, the most important of many important topics in this country. I mean, I think so much of where we are starts with that. This inability to trust or believe science. Well, we agree. <laughs> we appreciate very much uh, the opportunity to talk with you, Brad. It's been great. Yes. And uh, thank I can't, you so much. Yeah. I can't wait to pick this up and read it. Although I'm sure the whole time I'm going to be nodding my head going, yes, thank you. We need more of this. Do this. And uh, I'm happy to have you guys back on to talk about this whenever you want to. Thank you. Thank you. We'd love to. Have a great day. You too. Well, there you have it. That was Dr. Gail Sinatra and Dr. Barbara Hofer. Their book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It is out right now. I think this is the most important topic that exists in our country at this particular moment. So you should go out and buy that because we have to figure out how we're going to talk to each other. We have to figure out how we can find these common grounds that I know exist. We're just having a hard time getting to it. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard or saw today, please do us those two favors we talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Don't forget, we've got these video podcasts coming out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel about every Monday and Friday, and we got a bunch coming out because we've been interviewing some fantastic authors. You can also catch the audio version wherever you listen to the Downtown Writers Jam. Speaking of, the jam is out every Wednesday, so make sure you get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And remember, 
You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the Riders Jam. Till the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.